Dewey Dow. The first time me and Leif picked on down the road. Pa doesn't sweat because he will catch his death from the sickness of everybody that comes to help us. Jewel don't care about anything he is not kin to us and caring, not care kin. And Cash likes sawing the long, hot, sad yellow days up into planks and nailing them to something. And Pa thinks because the neighbors will always treat one another that way, that he has always been too busy letting neighbors do for him to find out. And I did not think that Dar would. That sits at the supper table with his eyes gone further than the food and the lamp. Full of the land dug out of his skull and the holes filled with distance beyond the land. We picked on down the road, the woods getting closer and closer and the secret shade, picking on into the secret shade with my sack and leaf sack. Because I said, will I or won't I when the sack was half full? Because I said, if the sack is full when we get to the woods, it won't be me. I said, if they don't mean for me to do it, the sack will not be full and I will turn up the next row. But if the sack is full, I cannot help it. It will be that I had to do it all the time, and I cannot help it. And we picked on towards the secret shade, and our eyes were drawn together, touching on his hands and my hands, and I didn't say anything. I said, what are you doing? And he said, I am picking into your sack. And so it was full when we came to the end of the row, and I could not help it. And so it was because I could not help it. It was then, and then I saw Daryl, and he knew. He said he knew without the words, like he told me that Ma is going to die without words, and I knew he knew because if he had said he knew with the words, I would not have believed that he had been there and saw us. But he said he did know, and I said, are you going to tell Pa? Are you going to kill him? Without the words, I said it, and he said, why? Without the words. And that's why I can talk to him with knowing, with hating, because he knows. He stands at the door looking at her. What do you want, Daryl? I say. She's going to die, he says. And old turkey buzzard tool coming to watch her die, but I can fool them. When is she going to die? I say. Before we get back, he says. Then why are you taking Jewel? I say. I want him to help me load, he says. Tool. Ants keeps rubbing on his knees. His overalls are faded. On one knee, a serge patch cut out of a pair of Sunday pants wore iron slick. No man mislikes him more than me, he says. A fellow's got to guess ahead now and then, I say. But come long and short, it won't be no harm done either way. She'll want to get started right off, he says. It's far enough to Jefferson at best. But the road is good now, I say. It's fixin' to rain tonight, too. He's folks berries at New Hope, too, not three. Miles away. But it's just like him to marry a woman born a day's hard right away and have her die on him. He looks out over the land, rubbing his knees. No man so mislikes it, he says. They'll get back in plenty of time, I say. I wouldn't worry none. It means three dollars, he says. Might be it won't be no need for them to rush back, no ways, I say. I hope it. She's a-going, he says. Her mind is set on it. It's a hard life on woman, for a fact. Some woman. I mind my mammy lived to be seventy and more. Worked every day, rain or shine. Never had a sick day since her last child was born until one day she kind of looked around her and then she went and taken that lace trim nightgown she had had for forty-five years and never wore out of the chest and put it on and laid down on the bed and pulled the covers up and shut her eyes. You all will have to look out for Paul best you can, she said. I'm tired. Anne rubs his hands on his knees. The Lord giveth, he says. 
We can hear Cash a hammering and sawing beyond the corner. It's true. Never a truer breath was ever breathed. The Lord giveth, I say. That boy comes up the hill. He's carrying a fish nigh long as he is. He slings it to the ground and grunts, Ha! And spits over his shoulder like a man. Durn nigh long as he is. What's that, I say? A hog? Where'd you get it? Down to the bridge, he says. He turns it over. The underside caked over with the dust where it is wet. The eye coated over, humped under the dirt. Are you aiming to leave it laying there? Aunt says. I am to show it to Ma, Bartiman says. He looks towards the door. We can hear the talking coming out on the draft. Cash, too, knocking and hammering at the boards. There's company in there, he says. Just my folks, I say. They'd enjoy to see it, too. He says nothing, watching the door. Then he looks down at the fish laying in the dust. He turns it over with his foot and prods at the eye bump with his toe, gouging at it. Ants is looking out over the land. Barnaman looks at Ants' face, then at the door. He turns, going towards the corner of the house, when Ants calls him without looking around. You clean that fish, Ants says. Barnaman stops. Why can't Dewey Dell clean it, he says. You clean that fish, Ants says. Ah, pa, Barnaman says. You clean it, Ant says. You don't look around. Barnaman comes back and picks up the fish. It slides out of his hands, smearing wet dirt onto him and flops down, dirtying itself again. Cat mouth goggled eyed, even hiding into the dust, like it was ashamed of being dead, like it was in a hurry to get back hit again. Barnaman cusses it. He cusses it like a grown man, standing astraddle of it. Ants don't look around. Barnaman picks it up again. He goes on around the house, toting it in both arms like an armful of wood, it overlapping him on both ends, head and tail. Durn I big as he is. Ants' his wrists dangle out of his sleeves. I never see him with the shirt on that looked like it was his in all my life. They all looked like Jewel might have given him his old ones. Not Jewel, though. He's long-armed, even if he is spindling. Except for the lack of sweat. You could tell that they ain't been nobody else's but Ants' that way without no mistake. His eyes looked like pieces of burnout cinder fixed on his face, looking out over the land. When the shadow touches the steps, he says, It's five o'clock. Just as I get up, Cora comes to the door and says it's time to get on. Ants reaches for his shoes. Now, Mr. Bundren, Cora says, Don't you get up now. He puts his shoes on, dumping into them. Like he does everything. Like he is hoping all the time he really can't do it and can quit trying to. When we go up the hall, we can hear them clumping on the floor like they was iron shoes. He comes towards the door where she is, blinking his eyes, kind of looking ahead of himself before he sees. Like he is hoping to find her setting up, in a chair maybe or maybe sleeping, and looks into the door in that surprised way like he looks in and finds her still in bed every time and Dewey Dell still fanning her with the fan. He stands there, like he don't aim to move again, nor nothing else. Well, I reckon we better get on, Cora says. I gotta feed the chickens. It's fixing a rain, too. Clouds like that don't lie. And the cotton making every day the Lord sends. That'll be something else for him. Cash is still trimming at the boards. If there's air a thing we can do, Cora says. Ants will let us know, I say. Ants don't look at us. He looks around, blinking, in that surprised way, 
like he had wore himself out before being surprised, and was even surprised at that. If Cash just works that careful on my barn. I told Ants, it likely won't be no need, I say. I so hope it. Her mind is set on it, he says. I reckon she's bound to go. If comes to all of us, Cora says, let the Lord comfort you. About that corn, I say. I tell him again I will help him out if he gets into a tight with her sick and all. Like most folks around here, I done helped him so much already I can't quit now. I am to get it today, he says. Seems like I can't get my mind on nothing. Maybe she'll hold out till you are laid by, I say. If God wills it, he says. Let him comfort you, Cora says. If Cash just works that careful on my barn. He looks up when we pass. Don't reckon I'll get to you this week, he says. It tain't no rush, I say. Whenever you get around to it. We get into the wagon. Cora sets the cake box on her lap. It's fixing to rain, too. I don't know what he'll do, Cora says. I just don't know. Poor aunts, I say. She kept him at work for thirty-odd years. I reckon she is tired. And I reckon she'll be behind him for thirty years more, Kate says. Or if it ain't her, he'll get another one before cotton-picking. I reckon Cash and Darrell can get married now, Eula says. That poor boy, Cora says. That poor little tyke. What about Jewel, Kate says. He can too, Eula says. <laughs> Kate says. I reckon he will. I reckon so. I reckon there's more gals than one around here that don't want to see Jewel tied down. Well, they needn't to worry. Why, Kate, Cora says. The wagon begins to rattle. That poor little tyke, Cora says. It's fixing to rain this night. Yes, sir. A rattling wagon is mighty dry weather for a bird show. But that'll be cured. It will be for a fact. She ought to take in them cakes after she said she would, Kate says. Ants. During that road. And it fixed in a rain, too. I can stand here and same as see it with second sight. A shutting down behind them like a wall. Shutting down betwixt them and my given promise. I do the best I can. Much as I can get my mind on anything. But during them, boys. I lay in there right up to my door where everything bad luck that comes and goes is bound to find it. I told Daddy it want any luck living on a road when it came by here. And she said, for the world like a woman, get up and move then. But I told her it want no luck in it. Because the Lord puts roads for traveling. Why he laid them down flat on the earth. When he aims for something to be always a moving, he makes it long ways. Like a road or a horse or a wagon. But when he aims for something to stay put, he makes it up and down ways, like a tree or a man. And so he never aimed for folks to live on a road. Because which gets there first, I says, the road or the house. Did you ever know him to set a road down by a house, I says? No, you never, I says. Because it's always men can't rest till they get to the house set where everybody that passes in a wagon can spit in the doorway, keeping the folks restless and wanting to get up and go somewhere else, when he aimed for them to stay put like a tree or a stand of corn. Because if he'd aimed for a man to be always a moving and going somewhere else, wouldn't he put him long ways on his belly like a snake? It stands to reason he would. Putting it where every bad luck prowling can find it and come straight to my door, charging me taxes on top of it. Making me pay for cash having to get them carpenter notions when if it hadn't been 
no road come there. He went and got them, falling off churches and lifting no hand in six months. And me and Addie slaving and a slaving. And there's plenty of sawing on this place he could do if he's got a saw. And Daryl, too. Talking me out of him during them. It ain't that I'm afraid of work. I always has fed me and mine and kept a roof above us. It's that they would shorthand me just because he tends to his own business. Just because he's got his eyes full of the land all the time. I says to them. He was all right at first with his eyes full of the land because the land laid up and down ways then. It wasn't till the air road come and switched the land around long ways and his eyes still full of the land that they'd begun to threaten me out of him, trying to shorthand me with the law, making me pay for it. She was well in hell as ye a woman ever were, except for that road, just laying down resting herself in her own bed, asking not of none. Are you sick, Addie? I said. I am not sick, she said. You lay you down and rest you, I said. I know you are not sick. You're just tired. You lay you down and rest. I am not sick, she said. I will get up. Lay still and rest, I said. You are just tired. You can get up tomorrow. And she was laying there, well in hell as ear a woman ever were, except for that road. I never sent for you, I said. I take you to witness I never sent for you. I know you didn't, Peabody said. I bound that. Where is she? She's laying down, I said. She's just a little tired, but she'll get out in here, aunts, he said. Go sit on the porch a while. And now I gotta pay for it. Me without a tooth in my head? hoping to get ahead enough so I could get my mouth fixed where I could eat God's own victuals as a man should, and her hell and what as ear a woman in the land until that day. Gotta pay for being put to the need of that three dollars. Got to pay for the way for them boys to have to go away to earn it. Now I can see same as second sight the rain shutting down betwixt us, coming up that road like a darn man, like it weren't ear a other house to rain on in all the living land. I've heard men cuss their look and write, for they were sinful men. But I, I do not say it's a curse on me, because I have done no wrong to be cussed by. I am not religious, I reckon, but peace is in my heart. I know it is. I have done things but neither better nor worse than them that pretend of the like, and I know that old master will care for me as for ear a sparrow that falls. But it seems hard that a man in his need could be so flouted by a road. But a man comes around the house, but he is a hog to his knees and that ear fish chopped up with the axe, like as not, or maybe throw it away for him to lie about the dogs that ate it. Well, I reckon I ain't no call to expect no more of him than of his man-growed brothers. He comes along, watching the house, quiet, and sits on the steps. Whew, he says, I'm pure tired. Go wash them hands, I say. But couldn't no woman strove harder than Addie to make them right, man and boy. I'll say that for her. It was full of blood and guts as a hog, he says. But I just can't seem to get no heart into anything with his... This here weather sapping me too, Pa, he says. Is Ma sick some more? Go wash them hands, I say. But I just can't seem to get no heart into it. Darl. He's been a town this week. The back of his neck is trimmed close, with the white line between hair and sunburn like a joint of white bone. He's not once looked back. Jewel, I say. Back running, tumbled between the two sets of bobbing mule ears, the road vanishes beneath the wagon as though it were a ribbon at the front axle were a spool. Do you know she's going to die, Jewel? It takes two people to make you and one people to die. That's how the world is going to end. 
I say to Dooley Duel, you want her to die so you can get to town? Is that it? She wouldn't say what we both knew. The reason you will not say it is, when you say it, even to yourself, you will know it is true. Is that it? But you know it is true now. I can almost tell you the day when you knew it was true. Why won't you say it, even to yourself? She will not say it. She just keeps on saying, are you going to tell Pa? Are you going to kill him? You cannot believe it is true, because you cannot believe that Dewey Dell, Dewey Dell Bundren, could have such bad luck. Is that it? The sun, now or above the horizon, is poised like a bloody egg upon a crust of thunderheads. The light has turned copper, and the eye pretentious, and the nose sulfurous, smelling of lightning. When Peabody comes, they will have to use the rope. He has puzzle-gutted himself eating cold grains. With the rope, they will haul him up the path, balloon-like up in the sulfurous air. Jewel, I say. Do you know that Addie Bundren is going to die? Addie Bundren is going to die? Peabody. When Anne's finally sent for me of his own accord, I said, he has wore her out at last. And I said a damn good thing. And at first I would not go because there might be something I could do and I would have to haul her back, by God. I thought maybe they have the same sort of fool ethics in heaven they have in the medical college, and that it was maybe Vernon Toll sending for me again, getting me there in the nick of time, as Vernon always does things, getting the most for Anne's money like he does for his own. But when it got far enough into the day for me to read the weather sign, I knew it couldn't have been anybody but Anne's that sent. I knew that nobody but a luckless man could ever need a doctor in the face of a cyclone. And I knew that if it had finally occurred to Ants himself that he needed one, it was already too late. When I reach the spring and get down and hitch the team, the sun has gone down behind a bank of black cloud like a top-heavy mountain range, like a load of cinders dumped over there, and there is no wind. I could hear Cash sawing for a mile before I got there. Ants is standing at the top of the bluff above her path. Where's the horse, I said. Jules taken and gone, he says. Can't nobody else catch it? You'll have to walk up, I reckon. Me walk up? Weighing 225 pounds, I say? Walk up that darn wall? He stands there beside a tree. Too bad the Lord made the mistake of giving trees roots and giving the ants bundrons he makes feet and legs. If he'd just swapped them, there wouldn't ever be a worry about this country being deforested someday, or any other country. What are you waiting for me to do, I say? Stay here and get blowed clean out of the county when that cloud breaks? Even with the horse, it would take me 15 minutes to ride up across the pasture to the top of the ridge and reach the house. The path looks like a crooked limb blown against the bluff. Ants has not been in the town in 12 years. Now his mother ever got up there to bury him? He being his mother's son. Vardaman's getting the rope, he says. After a while, Vardaman appears with the plow line. He gives the end of it to Anne's and comes down the path, uncoiling it. You hold it tight, I say. I done already wrote this visit onto my books, so I'm going to charge you just the same whether I get there or not. I got hit, Anne says. You can come up now. I'll be damned if I can see why I don't quit. A man 70 years old, weighing 200 and odd pounds, being hauled up and down a down mountain on a rope. I reckon it's because I must reach the $50,000 mark of dead accounts on my books before I can quit. What the hell does your wife mean, I say, taking sick on top of a darn mountain? 
I'm right sorry, he says. He let the rope go, just dropped it, and he has turned towards the house. There is little daylight up here still, with the color of sulfur matches. The boards look like strips of sulfur. Cash does not look back. Vernon Toll says he brings each board up to the window for her to see it, and says it is all right. The boy overtakes us. Ants looks back at him. Where's the rope, he says. It's where you left it, I say. But never you mind that rope. I got to get back down that bluff. I don't aim for that storm to catch me up here. I blow too darn far once I got started. The girl is standing by the bed, fanning her. When we enter, she turns her head and looks at us. She has been dead these ten days. I suppose it's having been a part of Ants for so long that she cannot even make that change, if change it be. I can remember how when I was young, I believed death to be a phenomenon of the body. Now I know it to be merely a function of the mind, and that of the minds of the ones who suffer the bereavement. The nihilists say it is the end, the fundamentalists the beginning, when in reality it is no more than a single tenant or family moving out of a tenement or a town. She looks at us. Only her eyes seem to move. It's like they touch us, not with sight or sense, but like the stream from a hose touches you. The stream at the instant of impact as dissociated from the nozzle as though it had never been there. She does not look at ants at all. She looks at me, then at the boy. Beneath the quilt, she is no more than a bundle of rotten sticks. Well, Miss Addie, I say. The girl does not stop the fan. How are you, sister? I say. Her head lies gaunt on the pillow, looking at the boy. You picked out a fine time to get me out here and bring up a storm. Then I sent Ants and the boy out. She watches the boy as he leaves the room. She has not moved, save her eyes. He and Ants are on the porch when I come out. The boy sitting on the steps, Ants standing by a post, not even leaning against it his arms dangling, the hair pushed and matted up on his head like a dipped rooster. He turns his head, blinking at me. Why didn't you send for me sooner, I say. It was just one thing and then another, he says. That ear corn me and the boys was aiming to get up with. And Dewey Dale a-taking good care of her and folks coming in offering a help and sitch. Till I just that. Damn the money, I say. Did you ever hear of me worrying a fellow before he was ready to pay? He ain't begrudging the money, he says. I just kept the thinking. She's going. Is she? The darn little tyke is sitting on the top step, looking smaller than ever in the sulfur-colored light. That's the one trouble with this country. Everything, weather, all, hangs on too long. Like our rivers, our land, opaque, Slow, violent, shaping and creating the life of man in its implacable and brooding image. I know hit, Aunt says. All the while I made sure her mind is sought on hit. It's a damn good thing too, I say. With the trifling, he sits on the top step. Small, motionless, in faded overalls. When I came out, he looked up at me, then at Aunt's. But now he has stopped looking at us. He just sits there. Have you told her yet? Aunt says. What for, I say. What the devil for? She'll know it. I know that when she see you, she would know it. Same as writing. 
wouldn't need to tell her her mind. Behind us, the girl says, Pa? I looked at her. At her face? You better go quick, I say. When we enter the room, she is watching the door. She looks at me. Her eyes look like lamps flaring up just before the oil is gone. She wants you to go out, the girl says. Now, Addie, Aunt says. When he come all the way from Jefferson to get you, Will? She watches me. I can feel her eyes. It's like she was shoving at me with them. I've seen it before in women. Seen them drive from the room, them coming with sympathy and pity, with actual help, and clinging to some trifling animal to whom they never were more than pack horses. That's what they mean by the love that passeth understanding, that pride, that furious desire to hide that abject nakedness with which we bring here with us, carrying with us into the operating rooms, carrying stubbornly and furiously with us into the earth again. I leave the room. Beyond the porch, Cassius saw snores steadily into the board. A minute later, she calls his name, her voice harsh and strong. Cash, she says. You, Cash. Doral. Pa stands beside the bed. From behind his legs, Vardaman peers, with his round head and his eyes round as his mouth beginning to open. She looks at Paul. All her failing life appears to drain into her eyes, urgent, irremediable. It's Joel she wants, Dewey Dell says. Why, Addie, Pa says. Him and Darl went to make one more load. They thought there was time, that you would wait for them, and that three dollars and all. He stoops, laying his head on hers. For a while yet, she looks at him, without reproach, without anything at all. As if her eyes alone are listening to the irrevocable cessation of his voice. Then she raises herself, who has not moved in ten days. Dewey Dell leans down, trying to press her back. Ma, she says. Ma. She is looking out the window, at Cash stooping steadily at the board in the felling light, laboring on towards darkness and into it as though the stroking of a saw illumined its own motion, more than saw it, and gender. You, Cash, she shouts, her voice harsh, strong, and unimpaired. You, Cash! He looks up at the gaunt face framed by the window in the twilight. It is a composite picture of all time since he was a child. He drops the saw and lifts the board for her to see, watching the window in which the face has not moved. He drags the second plank into position and slants the two of them into their final juxtaposition, gesturing towards the ones yet on the ground, shaping with his empty hand in pantomime the finished box. For a while, she still looks down at him from the composite picture, neither with censure nor approbation. Then the face disappears. She lies back and turns her head without so much as glancing at Paul. She looks at Bartiman, her eyes, the life in them, rushing suddenly upon them. The two flames glare up for a steady instant. Then they go out as though someone had leaned down and blown upon them. Ma? Duido says. Ma! Leaning above the bed, her hands lifted a little, the fan still moving like it was for ten days, she begins to cane. Her voice is strong, young, tremulous and clear wrapped with its own timbre and volume, the fan still moving steadily up and down, whispering the useless air. Then she flings herself across at Addie Bundren's knees, clutching her, shaking her with the furious strength of the young before sprawling settling across the handful of rotten bones that Addie Bundren left, jarring the whole bed into a chattering silence of mattress shooks, her arms outflung and the fan in one hand still beating with expiring breath into the quilt. 
From behind Pa's leg, Bartiman peers, his mouth full open, and all color draining from his face into his mouth, as though he has by some means fleshed his own teeth at himself, sucking. He begins to move slowly backward from the bed, his eyes round, his pale face fading into the dusk like a piece of paper pasted on a failing wall, and so out of the door. Paul leans above the bed in a twilight, his humped silhouette partaking of that owl-like quality of awry feathered, disgruntled outrage within which lurks a wisdom too profound or too inert for even thought. During them, boys, he says. Jewel, I say. Overhead, the day drives level and gray, hiding the sun by a flight of gray spears. In the rain, the mules smoke a little, splashed yellow with the mud, the awful clinging into sliding ledges to the side of the road above the ditch. The tilted lumber gleams dull yellow, water-soaked and heavy as lead, tilted at a steep angle into the ditch above the broken wheel. About the shattered spokes and about Jewel's ankles, a runnel of yellow neither water nor earth swirls, curving with the yellow road neither of earth nor water, down the hill dissolving into a streaming mass of dark green neither of earth nor sky. Jewel, I say. Cash comes to the door, carrying the saw. Pa stands beside the bed, humped, his arms dangling. He turns his head, his shabby profile, his chin collapsing slowly as he works the snuff against his gums. She's gone, Cash says. She's taken and left us, Pa says. Cash does not look at him. How nigh are you done, Pa says. Cash does not answer. He enters, carrying the saw. I reckon you better get at it, Pa says. You'll have to do the best you can, with them boys gone off that away. Cash looks down at her face. He is not listening to Pa at all. He does not approach the bed. He stops in the middle of the floor, the saw against his leg. His sweating arms powdered lightly with sawdust. His face composed. If you get in a tight, maybe some of them will get here by tomorrow and help you, Pa says. Vernon could. Cash is not listening. He is looking down at her peaceful, rigid face fading into the dusk as though darkness were a persecutor of the ultimate earth, until at last the face seems to float detached upon it, lightly as the reflection of a dead leaf. There's Christians enough to help you, Pa says. Cash is not listening. After a while, he turns without looking at Paul and leaves the room. Then the saw begins to snore again. They will help us in our saw, Paul says. The sound of the saw is steady, competent, unhurried, stirring in the dying light so that at each stroke her face seems to wake a little into an expression of listening and of waiting, as though she were counting the strokes. Paul looks down at the face, at the black sprawl of Dewey Dell's hair, the outflung arms, the clutched man, now motionless, on the fading quilt. I reckon you better get supper on, he says. Dewey Dell does not move. Get up now, and put supper on, Pa says. We got to keep our strength up. I reckon Dr. Peabody's right hungry. Coming all this way. And Cash will need to eat quick and get back to work so he can finish it in time. Dewey Dell rises, heaving to her feet. She looks down at the face. It is like a casting of fading bronze upon the pillow, the hands alone still with any semblance of life. 
a curled, gnarled inertness, a spent yet alert quality from which weariness, exhaustion, travail has not yet departed, as though they doubted even yet the actuality of rest. Guarding with warmed and penurious alertness the cessation which they know cannot last, Duidel stoops and slides the quilt from beneath them and draws it up over them to the chin, smoothing it down, drawing it smooth. Then, without looking at Paul, she goes around the bed and leaves the room. She will go out to where Peabody is, where she can stand in the twilight and look at his back with such an expression that, feeling her eyes and turning, he will say, I would not let it grieve me, now. She was old, and sick too, suffering more than we knew. She couldn't have gone well. Bartman's getting big now, and with you to take care of them all, I would try to not let it grieve me. I expect you'd better go and get some supper ready. They don't have to be much, but they'll need to eat. And she looking at him, saying, You could do so much for me, if you just would, if you just knew. I am I, and you are you, and I know it, and you don't know it, and you could do so much for me, if you just would, and if you just would, then... I could tell you, and then nobody would have to know it except you and me and Darl. Pa stands over his bed, dangle-armed, humped, motionless. He raises his head, scouring his hair, listening to the saw. He comes nearer and rubs his hand, palm and back, on his thigh, and lays it on her face and then on the hump of quilt where her hands are. He touches the quilt as he saw Dewey Dell do trying to smooth it up to, to the chin, but disarranging it instead. He tries to smooth it again, clumsily, his hand awkward as a claw, smoothing out the wrinkles which he made and which continue to emerge beneath his hand with perverse ubiquity, so that at last he desists, his hand falling to the side and stroking itself again, palm and back on his thigh. The sound of the saw snores steadily into the room. Paul breathes with a quiet, rasping sound, nodding the snuff against his gums. God's will be done, he says. Now I can get them teeth. Jules' hat droops limp about his neck, channeling water onto the soaked toe sack tied about his shoulders as, ankle-deep in the running ditch, he pries with a slipping two-by-four with a piece of rotten log for fulcrum at the axle. Jewel, I say. She is dead, Jewel. Addie Bundring is dead. Vardamain. Then I begin to run. I run towards the back and come to the edge of the porch and stop. Then I begin to cry. I can feel where the fish was in the dust. It is cut up into pieces of not fish. Now. Not blood on my hands and overalls. Then it wasn't so. It hadn't happened then. Now she is getting so far ahead I cannot catch her. The trees look like chickens when they ruffle out into the cool dust on the hot days. If I jump off the porch, I will be where the fish was. And it all cut up into not fish now. I can hear the bed and her face and them. And I can feel the floor shake when he walks on it. That came and did it. That came and did it when she was all right. But he came and did it. That fat son of a bitch. I jump from the porch, running. The top of the barn comes swooping up out of the light. If I jump, I can go through it, like the pink lady in the circus, into the warm-smelling 
without having to wait. My hands grab at the bushes. Beneath my feet, the rocks and the dirt go rumbling down. Then I can breathe again, and the warm smelling. I enter the stall, trying to touch him. And then I can cry, then I vomit the crying. As soon as he gets through kicking, I can, and then I can cry. The crying can. He killed her. He killed her. The life in him runs under the skin, under my hand, running through the splotches, smelling up in my nose where the sickness is beginning to cry, vomiting the crying, and then I can breathe, vomiting it. It makes a lot of noise. I can smell the life running up from under my hands, up my arms, and then I can leave the stall. I cannot find it. In the dark, along the dust, the walls, I cannot find it. The crying makes a lot of noise. I wish it wouldn't make so much noise. Then I find it in the wagon shed, in the dust, and I run across the lot and into the road, the stick jouncing on my shoulder. They watch me as I jump, beginning to jerk back, their eyes rolling, snorting, jerking back on the hitch rein. I strike. I can hear the stick striking. I can see it hitting their heads, the breast yoke, missing altogether sometimes as they rear and plunge, but I am glad. You killed my ma! The stick breaks. They rearing and snorting their feet popping loud on the ground, loud because it is going to rain and the air is empty for the rain. But it is still long enough. I run this way, and that's as rear and jerk at the hitch rain striking. You kill her! I strike at them, striking. They wheeling in the long lunge, the buggy wheeling onto two wheels and motionless like it is nailed to the ground, and the horses motionless like they are nailed by the hind feet to the center of a whirling plate. I run in the dust. I cannot see, running in the sucking dust where the buggy vanishes, tilted on two wheels. I strike, the stick hitting the ground, bouncing, striking into the dust, and then into the air again, and the dust sucking on down the road faster than if a car was in it. And then I can cry, looking at the stick. It is broken down to my hand, not longer than stove wood that was a long stick. I throw it away and I can cry. It does not make so much noise now. A cow is standing in the barn door, chewing. When she sees me come into the lot, she lows, her mouth full of flopping green, her tongue flopping. I ain't a-going to milk you. I ain't a-going to do nothing for them. I hear her turn when I pass. When I turn, she is behind me with her sweet, hot, hard breath. Didn't I tell you I wouldn't? She nudges me, snuffing. She moans deep inside, her mouth closed. I jerk my hand, cursing her like Jewel does. Get now! I stoop my hand to the ground and run at her. She jumps back and rolls away and stops, watching me. She moans. She goes onto the path and stands there, looking up to the path. It is dark in the barn, warm, smelling, silent. I can cry quietly, watching the top of the hill. Cash comes to the hill limping where he fell off of the church. He looks down at the spring, then up the road and back toward the barn. He comes down the path stifly and looks at the broken hitch rain and at the dust in the road, and then up the road, where the dust is gone. I hope they've got clean paths stole by now. I so hope it. Cash turns and limps up the path. Durn him. I showed him. Durn him. I am not crying now. I am not anything. Dewey Dell comes to the hill and calls me, Vardaman. I am not anything. I am quiet. You, Vardaman. I can cry quiet now.
feeling and hearing my tears. Then hit want. It hadn't happened then. It was laying right there on the ground. Now she's getting ready to cook it. It is dark. I can hear wood. Silence. I know them. But not living sounds. Not even him. It is as though the dark were resolving him out of his integrity into an unrelated scattering of components. Snuffings and stampings. Smells of cooling flesh and ammoniac hair. An illusion of a coordinated whole of splotched, hide and strong bones within which, detached and secret and familiar, and is different from my is. I see him dissolve, legs, a rolling eye, a gaudy splotching like cold flames, and float upon the dark and fading solution. All one yet neither, all either yet none. I can see hearing coil toward him, caressing, shaping his hard shape, Fetlock, hip, shoulder, and head, smell and sound. I am not afraid. Cooked and eat. Cooked and eat.